It's time once again to welcome our guest to the studio. And on a Wednesday, as normal, we've got Stuart Oldcraft, uh, the Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant. Uh, Stuart is with us every Wednesday. Stuart, welcome to the show. Can't hear Stuart at the moment for some reason. Not sure why that is. Uh, let's see whether we've got uh, Barry Wood with us. Uh, <laughs> Barry, are you there? I, I think you do. Yes, I am here. <laughs> That's good very, morning to you, James. Very good. Um, nice to have you on. And obviously, while we uh, wait for Stuart to join us, um, Jerome Powell's remarks overnight are the market uh, uh, moving uh, things, aren't they? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know, s- so much has happened in, in just a month. And... Um, Here's Stuart now. Stuart, are you with us now? I am, James. I thought you must must have heard me. Ah, thank you. Glad you're on in that case. uh, Barry heard me, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously, the the sentiment, Barry, has been that uh, interest rates seem to be plateauing. But uh, with Jerome's statement overnight, things not looking quite so good. Well, that's true. I I really enjoyed watching all two-plus hours of his testimony. Because, um, you know, when you've got, what, 10 senators with very differing viewpoints asking pointed questions coming from all different perspectives, you know, that's quite a test. And I think uh, Jay Powell really handles that well. But you're right. The message is that there's a hawkish tone and clearly rates will be higher for longer. That's the message. That's why the stock market was down. And I think uh, three would be that um, there is an extra tight, extremely tight, was his word, labor market. And he sees that tight labor market as further impetus for why the Fed will continue to raise rates. It's interesting, Barry, because, I mean, he must have been listening to our show last week because we did talk about the fact that... (laughs) He was listening to you, Stuart. You were the one who said those rates were going to be high. (laughs) That's right, but um, I didn't want to mention that, but I'm glad you did. (laughs) But, uh, no, I mean, interest rates have got to go higher, and and I think um, far too often the markets widely underestimate where interest rates will go at the, at the, in the current mood. I think people are still thinking that there's a, there's a possibility of a reduction in interest rates sometime later this year. There's no chance of that as far as I can see. I think that, I mean, the, the, the economics of uh, the US plus those of Europe and most parts of the world are still not under control and, and interest rates for the central banks are just the best way and probably the only way they can control uh, economics and particularly inflation. Is it an effective tool, um, Barry, uh, Stuart? What, what do you think? Is it, is it really doing the job it's supposed to do? Well, it will do eventually. It just takes its time. Um, And the idea is to try and cool off a lot of speculation in the market and and to um, reduce the amount of spending that might otherwise occur. Uh, But it it, uh, will take more time. And and, unless you do it in one big swoop with a very big increase, which no one likes, then it has to be done in stages over a period of time. Now, Jerome Powell... Yeah, is... James... Go on, Barry, sorry. James, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, things have changed rather dramatically, perhaps, in the last two weeks, and, and that's correct. Powell made reference to the fact that the unemployment rate in the United States is at a 40- to 50-year low, 
Now, he wants that rate to come up, but he doesn't want to see a great deal of additional people lose their jobs. So you've got a stronger economy than expected. He does say that, you look, inflation is down two percentage points from its peak. We're making progress. But he called attention to historical evidence that suggests that if you stop, if a central bank stops a tightening process too soon, that leads to a fallback and, in fact, becomes entirely counterproductive. So, yeah, that was, uh, that's what the market played on today. I think Stewart's got it exactly right. Uh, there will be higher rates for longer. Uh, Powell mentioned that rates are up 4.5% uh, in just one year's time. And by the way, housing is the, in, is the sector most impacted. Mortgage interest rates here in the States have doubled just in the past year. Um, now, Jerome Powell is under some pressure, though, isn't he, politically? Democrats on the Senate committee were concerned that the Fed will go too far in tightening monetary policy and trigger a recession. Uh, Sherrod Brown, chair of the committee, said, quote, we cannot risk undermining one of the successes of our current economy. And Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic se senator from Massachusetts, accused Mr. Powell of, quote, gambling with people's lives, saying the Fed's inflation goals will put two million people out of work. I don't know. You know, he does seem to be uh, under a lot of pressure here, doesn't he, from, uh, from everybody? Well, I'll take that. Look, um, both Senator Brown from Ohio, Democrat, liberal, and Senator Warren from Massachusetts, they would say that. That's their constituency. And it's great that you have this kind of wide perspective of view. But when you've got an unemployment rate that is at a 40-year low, and you've got an economy doing better than had been predicted by everybody, then I think their arguments are relatively weak. Flexibility is, is probably what the Federal Reserve has most in its toolbox. If things, as those two senators suggest, get bad, they can reverse the policy. But I like <laughs> this rather rotund senator from Montana, Mr. Tester. He said, thank God we have an independent central bank. And I think he means it. It works. Well, I... Barry, Barry um, in the UK, there's a problem of uh, early retirement and a very large proportion, about 6 million people, have um, taken early retirement before age 65. And that has meant that there is a lot of people who are economically inactive, and that has been causing uh, problems as far as the UK is concerned, because it's not bringing enough money into the economy. Is there a similar situation going on in the US? Not in that way, Stuart, no. Look, we have distortions in the labor market, mm. but I think it's really because of all the money that was pumped out because of the COVID problem. Uh, yes, that problem exists, but not to the extent. You know, look, look at the debate in France. They don't want a retirement rate, uh, <laughs> yes. retirement age to go up over 64. Good heavens. You know what? All the data would suggest that the retirement age should be raised yes. to 70 or something. Yeah. But no, I think uh, I'm aware of the problem that you identify with the UK. It does exist in the States, but not to a very large extent.
So I guess the, the the problem that we're all worrying about is, you know, could any of this tip the um, the US into recession, which could uh, send the whole world into recession? Recession, and of course, it's not just uh, Jerome Powell and the interest rates. It's uh, also later on this year the the debt ceiling as well. And if that doesn't get raised in the US, that cause could cause commotion as well, couldn't it, Barry? Now, James, don't be a prophet of doom. <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> don't forget that about 80% of private sector in, uh, economists had predicted that the United States economy would be in recession in 2023. We may be, but it hasn't happened yet. And I, and I think a lot of the predictions about recession are um, too gloomy, frankly. I think that the, 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 there's a wish on the part of many global economists to see a recession in different places, but actually economies are much better at holding up against this than, than they're, they're given credit for. Now, China is to set up a new regulatory body uh, consolidating financial oversight. Analysts say the move is aimed at closing loopholes with multiple agencies monitoring different aspects of trillions of dollars worth of its financial services industry. What do you make of this, uh, Stuart? What's, uh, what's going on here? Well, um, given the scale of China's market and, and, uh, and the different uh, bodies involved in this, it probably is a very sensible move. Um, it, it's been reported that the scale of the, um, the oversight that this new regulatory body will have will be around 400 trillion renminbi. That's uh, 57 trillion U.S. dollars, just to put it into perspective. Quite a lot of money. Um, that's, uh, the, and, and the objective is that it will look at both the banking and insurance sector as well as uh, some other sectors. Now, there has been for the last four years or so um, a, a regulator that was just the um, CBIRC, um, China Banking and Insurance uh, Regulatory Corporation, and, and uh, and that has had some slow progress in, in getting its act together. Separately, entirely separately, the CSRC, the Chinese Securities uh, Regulator, um, will not be part of the new uh, super regulator, but will uh, take on um, more aspects of the securities industry. Now, one issue which has been... Um, concerning China for a long time is the extent of uh, both the bureaucracy that these um, commissions have, but also corruption as well. And so they do see these as ways in which by changing the regulator, having a, a new super regulator, this will um, improve that issue considerably. Uh, the bureaucracy is an issue which probably will still take a long time to get rid of. And, and, and this is slow progress, frankly but uh, an improvement to the way it used to be. I wonder, does this reflect uh, tightening regulation around the world? You know, obviously in the Western world, in US, Europe, uh, regulation is tight and, and, and getting tighter all, all the time, Barry, isn't it? I mean, you know, there is a big focus on making sure that uh, people do what they're supposed to be doing, right? Well, that's true. But, uh, you know, the United States is a laggard, and uh, that's not altogether bad. For example... Uh, you know, we didn't have mobile telephones until about 20 years after Europe. And, um, you know, in a, in a sense, we've caught up and, and probably leapfrogged. I mean, certainly Apple has. Uh, but to 
speak to your question about regulation of crypto, for example. We don't have anything yet. We don't have anything that is regulating the size of our tech companies uh, like the Europeans already have. So, uh, yes, regulation certainly is important. And Jay Powell spoke of that in his testimony today. You've got to have regulation, but uh, it's very hard to reach consensus. And that's what is supposed to happen in a Congress. Okay, let's turn to another story, slightly lighter one. Um, Hong Kong is the top Asian city for ultra-wealthy individuals. That according to a study by Altrata, which tracks the super-rich and puts Beijing into second spot with uh, Singapore third. To be ultra-wealthy, you need to be worth at least 30 million US dollars. Hong Kong has an estimated 15,000 such residents, but ranks third overall, trailing New York with almost 22,000 such individuals and London with almost 16,000 individuals. Doesn't mention Washington, uh, Barry, so you don't seem to be on the list. Um, <laughs> We're all a bunch of bureaucrats here. <laughs> what, is, what does this say uh, about life at the moment? You know, is, is money really concentrated in the hands of the super rich? You know, we, we talk a lot about Elon Musk, for instance, and, and, and others of his ilk. Uh, your thoughts on that, uh, Stuart? Well, uh, yes, Hong Kong has been a magnet for money for a very long time, and uh, a lot of that has come from China. So when you're sort of quoting the fact that Beijing isn't on the list, um, my guess is that Shanghai and or Beijing would be very close to making the top list. Well, Beijing but, is in, in second spot in Asia. Yeah, mm. so, but, but Hong Kong has attracted the money, mainly because it's been, a, it's been an open economy, it's been a free market, and, and people have been able to get all the banking and, uh, and um, investment services that they want and uh, in a way that they want it. And that's why it has done so well. And it's not um, unrealistic to presume that this is exactly the same reason why London and New York have done so well in, in, in attracting so many individuals with, with large amounts of money. Um, it helps as well in Hong Kong that we have a very low tax rate. And uh, as we know, most wealthy individuals uh, do look to find places where they can reduce the amount of taxes they pay. And so that's why Hong Kong has been another reason for, for it to be very attractive. To, 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 uh, and people have been able to make money here. You know, that's, that's the big thing. Um, people have been able to get companies listed on the stock exchange, whether they be local people or, main, or, or, or many of them are mainland Chinese who have moved their companies here or moved themselves here over mm. the previous years. And that's the way in which uh, a lot of that wealth has been created too. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Stuart Oldcroft. And also thank you very much to uh, Barry Wood. And Barry will be back a little bit later in the show uh, to give us his view from the U.S.